Hi, and welcome to Sustainability Explored, a podcast where I unfold, with the help of invited guests from across the world, how sustainability practices are integrated into business operations in various industries. My name is Anna, and I am an environmentalist, sustainability consultant, and a host of this show. Today we are talking with Jimena Gutierrez-Linse, a conservation biologist, environmentalist, and visitor center coordinator at Sea Turtle Conservancy. We studied together for our master's degree in applied ecology with Jimena, and it's a great pleasure to be talking to her today, to my classmate, these days high-class professional in conservation, who sort of always knew what she'd want to dedicate her life to, what kind of cause she would like to serve. I appreciate you taking the time to join us today. We have an amazing interview coming up that I know you will love. We will talk about turtles conservation, wild nature, and ethical environmental tourism. Let's get right into it. Hi, everyone, and hi, Himen. Today, my guest is Jimena Gutierrez-Linsen, a conservation biologist based currently in Costa Rica, but originally from Mexico. And today we are taking an unprecedented, unexpected and surprising turn into sustainable tourism and how it marries with conservation actions. We are seeing today, it's not a surprise probably for anyone, how climate changes and one of the core roles that is at the center, at the epicenter of everything that we're witnessing now is the loss of biodiversity. Uh, As a result, we can see the changes in trophic chain and so on. And today we will see how tourism and its sustainable kind of way of doing can help with conservation actions. I am very pleased to welcome my guest, Hime, today. Uh, Hime was also studying with me during the master's for two years. We were doing, what was it called? Erasmus Mundus in Applied Ecology, together in France, where else? UK, we were together. And then, yeah, so in France and UK, we were together. We were even living in the same house in Norwich. So we know each other pretty well, and it's my great pleasure to have you today on the podcast. Himem, for the listeners, could you please briefly introduce yourself, you know, lead us to your biggest passion? Yeah, of course. So hi, everybody. I'm very pleased to be here with Anna. As she said, we we were roommates at some point. We lived together for three months when we were in UK, so I'm very excited be here sharing with you and with Anna, of course, uh, all this information about uh, my greatest passion in life. So as Anna said, I'm a conservation biologist with applied ecology with Anna. And so before, just to have a little bit of a background uh, of myself, before the master's, I, I studied biology in Mexico, and then I was working for an NGO, a non-governmental organization that it's called the Mexican Fund for nature conservation. Basically over there, I was just working in the database, but with the project database that led me to, to want to do more on the field. That's why I choose to, to do the masters that we did together. And I have to say that while I was in the masters, my initial plan was to work in ecosystem analysis and work in like more broad subjects. Um, I was 
very uh, around that time I was very against of focusing just in one species but during the holiday period between the two years of our masters I had the very great experience of volunteering in a sea turtle camp in Greece then I couldn't go back I was so happy it made me so happy to work there and see the baby turtles go to the sea even as cheesy as it sounds I, I fell in love with it and then I, I changed all my plans to, to work around the sea turtles so after that, I looked to do my thesis, my master thesis around sea turtles. So I went to Italy to work with loggerheads. Uh, my thesis theme was the marine debris ingestion by loggerheads in the Mediterranean Sea. And after that, I came back home for a year and a half or so while I was looking for a job. And then I found a, a volunteer program here in Costa Rica that um, volunteering with sea turtles, it's a, like a big thing around the world you usually have to pay and this was the only one that i found that i didn't have to pay because i didn't have money back then i came here i was supposed to be here as a volunteer for two and a half months i ended up staying six and after that i found a job right now i've been here almost four years in the same place uh, i was very very lucky in the past years i coordinated a project then i work in the the visitor center of the organization that I work right now with, uh, its name is the Sea Turtle Conservancy. Right now I'm coordinating the field research when we start having field research because as you know, coronavirus is it's it's making things complicated. It's crazy so, that you're not even allowed to go on the beach. It still doesn't land yes, in my head. Right now we're dealing with that. We, I hope that we can solve that soon and we can go back just to get the data. Hime, you know, you're probably the best person to ask this question. Let's assume I'm dumb and I don't know. Yes. <laughs> How would you explain an average person, a child maybe, or someone very far from conservation and biodiversity and nature as such, why turtles are important? So turtles are usually used as an indicator of the well-being of the oceans or the earth in general because basically turtles travel a lot they depend on the health of different ecosystems around their cycles just to briefly summarize sea turtles like their life cycle works they come to to the nesting area the moms lay their eggs moms and and dads come to to the area they mate then they lay their eggs and then they go back to, to their foraging grounds that, that can be 50 kilometers away in the case, for example, hawksbills. But there are other species like greens that the population that we have here in, in Costa Rica, they go all around the Caribbean. Like there are turtles that we have seen here in Costa Rica that have been encountering Cuba, in Guadalupe, in uh, Trinidad and Tobago, in Venezuela, Colombia, Mexico. They go all around. So they depend on everything around to be healthy, so they are healthy. Uh, in the other way, there are other things. Why do we need turtles? It's also since these migrations, they are the ones that move nutrients all around the ecosystems. For example, the eggs that they lay on the beaches where they lay their eggs, after the babies are hatched, the, the eggs are still there. The shells remain in the beach, and then we all beach dynamics those nutrients will get back to the dunes and then they will benefit the vegetation in that area. 
when they move, they also move some nutrients. There are some algae that can grow in their shells. So there are other fishes that grow from those, that feed from those algae that grow on their shells. And in the specific cases of leatherbacks, they mainly feed from jellyfish. For example, there are some jellyfish blooms in Europe that are believed to, like some of the causes of that is that we're losing the leatherbacks. So the leatherbacks are not eating the jellyfish. So the jellyfish is blooming and then it's causing problems for fishing people, for example, in the Mediterranean Sea. Or in the case of greens, they feed, we consider them the herbivorous ones. They mainly feed from seagrass and algae. When they go to the seagrass beds in their foraging grounds, and when they feed from the grass, it has, like scientists have found that when the turtles feed from the grass, the grass grows bigger. The grass is not only for the turtles to eat, also there are other species, like, like some species of fishes, that use those grounds to have a shelter, to have a home. So if the grass doesn't grow enough, they don't have a shelter. And also it fixes a little bit like the substrate, the sand, on the bottom of the sea. So if there is not enough grass, all that moves and then we have your Well, you cannot see clearly and then that will affect other species. So basically, if we lose turtles, it's a chain that we will start losing other problems. Mm -hmm. Because they basically, they move nutrients and they help different species uh, along their way. That's why turtles are so important right. to conserve. And they are also pretty, so. <laughs> Nice. Uh, people tend to sympathize those with fur, okay. like panda, but um, yeah, definitely turtles are exciting and pretty. You mentioned you did your master's research on plastic debris consumption by the animals in Mediterranean. Last month, no, two months ago, I think in February, I gave a series of lectures, like small workshops, 45 minutes each, to school, school pupils in the remote area in the villages in southern Ukraine uh, about conscious living, zero waste life and uh, I was as, as much as I could engaging them and inspiring them to quit using plastic and replace it with more eco-friendly products. I myself for example use solid shampoo, uh, I don't use the what is it called the sponges and so on, instead I use something called loofah is it, I hope it's the same name in English. And I was using the example of, but look, uh, everything is uh, interconnected in nature and the plastic you're using here in Ukraine will end up in the ocean. People do not connect these two. Like, how am I sitting somewhere very deeply somewhere in the village? How do I personally contribute to the world ocean what would you tell to these people anywhere in the world if their country doesn't have a direct exit to the ocean basically uh, one of the main problems is that we believe that if we put things in the garbage then we are okay because we did our job but it's not really like that we need to like, think more about where do these go especially like using the garbage in the garbage bin and then the the truck that collects it comes for it and then that goes to dump fields. It's one of the biggest problems of our time is that we as humans, we didn't think about the whole full cycle of all the things that we are using. These dump fields, the things don't just stay there. There are other species that, well, there used to be a forest over there or there used to be a jungle where dump fields are now. So uh, there are a lot of birds or like 
general wildlife that somehow end up there and can consume those things. If you think about places where don't have direct connection to land, if you pay a little bit more attention to it, you will notice that it drains. And when it drains, um, things can get floated and the garbage that are, it's found in these dump fields uh, can get carried away by the water of rain and then goes to the rivers and from the rivers to the ocean. Even if you think that the plastic bag that you are throwing into your home, it's going to end safely in a dump field. Maybe it's not. Maybe all the garbage that we see on the beach, uh, maybe they are like, and probably they were from our, our own homes. The place where I work right now hasn't done anything like that yet, but there are other organizations around this area here in Northern Caribbean, Costa Rica, that they have been doing a research about the plastic that ends up on the beach. Two years ago, we were paying more attention to that. And here, if you walk on the beach, you can find things that came from England, Holland, even Egypt. Like we had one time that we had a, a milk container from Egypt. Um, everything is connected. Somehow currents go really far away all around the oceans. It's important to not only be concerned about the impact that you have in like around your area because everything is connected somehow. Even if you think that it's only local, generally it's not only local, that everything is a domino effect. Like things that you affect around your house will have a consequence in, in the bigger picture. Yeah, that, that's exactly what I tried to do, but I, I think I failed at <laughs> that time. <laughs> uh, that opportunity, rare opportunity that I had to, to speak in front of kids. Uh, Hime, back to your work at the center. What exactly do you do? And give me that story that you shared with me previously about how turtles started to serve uh, the community in, in more ways than just meat. Sure. So right now, my job is uh, to coordinate the volunteers and the research assistants that come to the station. Every time that we have a new volunteer or, or a research assistant, I train them on how to identify different species of sea turtles, how to locate them on the beach. Like the work that we do on the beach are really early in the morning and at night. Really early in the morning, we count all the tracks that were made the night before so we can have an idea of how the nesting behavior is working, if we have more turtles than previous years or less, uh, in which areas of the beach we have more turtles. And then at night, we look for the actual turtles. And then if we have the opportunity, we mark some of those nests so we can follow them through their incubation periods. And then at the end, we excavate them to know more about the hatching and the merging success, to see if we are doing right, if we are having problems. We have some very specific projects um, around. For example, with the nest, we also have been deploying some data loggers to know more about the temperature inside the nests and also when we go out at night, the main work that we do is we look for the turtles and after they finish laying, we approach them to tag them and check if they have tags and to measure them and to do a general body check to see if everything is right. We haven't been doing this for more than 60 years now. So we have a really big database and we can know things. For example, I can tell you now that the turtles that come to Tortuguero to nest they are very loyal, like more than 70% of the turtles lay their nests in the same two kilometers 
every time that they come. They don't come every year, they come every two or every three years, but every time that they come, more than 75% of them lay their eggs in the same two kilometers around that. The beach that we monitor is eight kilometers long. There are turtles that we have always at the end of the beach or always in the middle of the beach. So that's something quite fascinating about how, like if you see the ocean, it's like, wow, they know somehow how to go back to the same place. Also, we can know a little bit more about their growth, that we know now that they don't grow that much. Once we reach our, our sexual maturity, we don't grow that more anymore. It's the same with the turtles. But in, in the weeds, we still grow. Yes, we still grow in weeds, not that much in height. One of the biggest importance of the place where I work, it's uh, we were the first sea turtle organization that works in conservation. Uh, we were the first ones that started with this work, thanks to a really cool guy that his name is Archie Carr. He was an herpetologist from the University of Florida. He sadly passed away the same year that I was born. He was like a really great guy. He came here to know more about the turtles. In the early 50s, he was gathering information about the, the turtles and he found out that we knew almost nothing about them. So he started gathering information around the turtles. Somebody told him that there was a place in Costa Rica that he should come to visit. He came. He saw like it was impressed. Like there are thousands and thousands of turtles that come every year. But around that time when he came, people would directly use the turtles to survive. Like the place where I'm sitting right now, it was very isolated around that time was really hard to get here so people would just leave from whatever they can find around and turtles were a very easy way to get some protein in their diet so they would directly use them and then Archie Carr started to work in the area they started to study the turtles he didn't only come here to Tortuguero he had quite a nice trip all around the Caribbean and he decided to write a book about his experience and fortunately for the turtles he was a very very good writer especially for nature because he published a book that it's called The Windward Road. It tells stories about the turtles from different places in the Caribbean. And it was such a well-written book that somebody in the States read the book, fell in love with the idea, bought a lot of copies of the book, gave it to his closest friends that he thought that they might be interested in knowing more about the turtles and helping him with the cause. So their friends fell in love. They founded the Brotherhood of the Sea Turtle and then they look for Dr. Carr. No one of them knew Archie Carr. So they liked the idea of the book. They look for Dr. Carr and then they told him, we want to help you. We want to help you to conserve the green turtles of the Caribbean. So that's how in 1959, the organization was created. Back then it was called the Caribbean Conservation Corporation. But then in 2009, we changed the name to the Sea Turtle Conservancy. And since then, we've been working on that. We have this really big database with information. And also one of the biggest achievements of the work that this person did, he started gathering data. With all the data that they started gathering in the 50s and 60s, the national park that we have around here, the Tortuguero National Park, was created. At the beginning, it was hard for the people because they were limited in the use of the resources that we had in the area. So at the beginning, they were not so happy about the creation of the national park because they couldn't have their regular source of food. After a while in the 80s, the people were attracted by the turtles. 
So there were people that started coming to see the turtles. At the beginning, people were allowed to just go on the beach with no regulations. Um, there was not that many people. At the beginning, we only had like 300 people a year. Like in eight, 1982, there were only like three, 400 people that were coming to see the turtles. But then the tourism started increasing like gradually, gradually, more and more and more people. So by 1990, we had around a thousand people coming all year round to see the turtles. People in the community and also people from the STC, they noticed like, okay, it's not good that the people are just walking around on the beach because they are scaring the turtles away. So around 1991, there was uh, the first workshop to train people, locals, to train them on how to guide these people, like how to organize these people to take them to the beach to look for the turtles and find them, having more information for the people, not just go and see the turtle, like be responsible about the way that you see the turtle. And then we started having more and more and more and more people. I have to say that last year we have more than around 40 to 50,000 people coming just to see the turtles. In the early 2000s, there was another concern about all this amount of people going to the beach because initially the tour guides had to take their, like a gr in groups of 10, they would just walk on the beach looking for the turtles. They would scare turtles away because there were too many people on the beach. So we created what it's called the spotter program. So basically now it's people wait in a base on the beach behind the vegetation. The spotters are just two to three people that look for the turtles on the beach. And once a turtle is ready to be seen, the, the people with the tourists with their guide go to the, we have different exits on the beach that are marked with numbers. So the spotter can tell the guide, okay, we have a turtle at the north of exit 31. So they go to exit 31, they wait until everything is ready, and then they go and see the turtle without like me trying to minimize the impact that we have in the, in the other turtles. And with that, that's the, one of the key points of, why this, this place is considered one of the most successful conservation projects and it's because we successfully managed to change the direct consumption of turtles to a non-direct consumption of them. Yeah, you mean uh, people used to eat turtles, meat of, of the turtles? Yeah, now they sell the experience of seeing the turtles. So that's what was so great that that's the key to the success that we have in this place that we managed to to generate not only we like um, all together managed to generate an income from an activity that is not directly taking the turtles mm -hmm. so that's why we have the success here so there was a study made some years ago that for example if you sell a turtle one turtle maybe you will get i don't know around a hundred dollars maybe for one turtle death and then in these tours, um, it has changed over time, but it's more or less that you can charge $25 for, for each person to see the turtle. So each guy can show one turtle, like every time that they show a turtle, like with a full group, they're going to take $250 out of a turtle. And you're not killing her. She's going to come back at some point. You can show her many times, not just once. It was not such an easy way because, as I said before, there were some times when locals were not so happy that they couldn't take, but it was something that worked over time because of, we managed to generate an income for the people in the community. Right. How long did it take to teach the community? 
the per to change the perception of the community? I would say around 40 years. 40 years. Because there is still there is still some locals that have been living for a very long time that they still believe that they should have the right to eat turtles. It's not a complete change, but most of the community is aware of the importance of the turtles. And they are aware of that because they can generate an income from turtles as a, a touristic attraction. And is it banned now to kill the turtles for food purposes? Yes, right now it's banned. Ah, something important about this gradual change is that the ban was not applied immediately. It was a gradual thing. So for example, at the beginning it was like, okay, each family can only take one turtle a week or two turtles a week. So it was gradual that they changed. At some point they were still allowed to take the turtles to be able to have some food. But right now it's totally illegal to, to kill a turtle. The, what did they replace the protein source with, if not the turtle? Well, right now we get meat, meat, chicken, pork, from, not from the area. Like we don't produce, there is nothing produced around the area. We're in the middle of a national park. People around here, they just depend on tourism. That right now it's a big of a problem. Right. But everything comes from the other parts of Costa Rica. Mm -hmm. Like the, the proteins, beans, rice, everything comes from other parts in Costa Rica. This year, this season, most probably, probably 99% of certainty, there will be no tourist season. How do you think the center will survive? Or do you think uh, internal tourism will flourish? The big season, the big part of the turtle season is in September. We hope that this thing, the COVID-19 situation, changes around July, August, so we can start having some tourists. Because the problem around here is that most of the tourism that comes here and that helps this community to survive are Europeans. So not we, the Americans, the US. Not, there are some Americans, but I would say that the, the most common nationality that visits the national park are French, Americans, and Germans. We rely a lot on the European tourism. At this year, to be honest, I don't know how this is going to go. In our case, for example, here in the station, we, we don't survive with none of these activities. We left all the revenue that generates from the turtle, from the turtle watch. It goes directly to the community because we believe that that's the, the key to keep the, the success going on, that the community receives the, the revenue. What we live from, it's uh, private donors mainly, and also we have a small visitor center. It's a small museum. It helps us with expenses that are generated by the running of the station. Right now, we depend on donations, basically. So we hope that uh, people still donate to us and we are cutting like some, some non-basic activities that we can do. So to, to save some money to continue with the work and yeah, with the community, I hope that the tourism starts again sometime later at the end of this year so the community can survive. Yeah. Because yeah, they are the ones that are getting the worst part because they depend 
on people coming like this community lives survives only from tourism there is no other activity not fishing not even fishing because it's a national park also it's a, a marine national park people are not allowed to fish so we are blocked from every side no fishing yes no so any private person any individual can support the center from you know yes anybody can support us we would really much appreciate i can send you the link you can go directly to our webpage that it's conserveturtles.org or you can just google sea turtle conservancy and you can donate directly there we have a really cool uh, way to donate that you can adopt a turtle and you can name a turtle you will know the tag number that she has you cannot follow her because they don't have a satellite transmitter that's quite expensive though if you would like to have a turtle with satellite transmitter it could be nice you can help us with our research but that's it's around five thousand dollars to to follow a turtle but the adoptions that we regularly sell are just thirty dollars and with that you get to name a turtle you know her tag and at the end of the year we'll let you know if we encounter your turtle again on the beach if people that are listening to us would like to help us to continue with the project we would very much appreciate any donation and just go to the webpage and there is a lot of information about turtles on the webpage too well, definitely the link in the show notes how many species do you find there uh, at the center so here um, on Tortuguero Beach we we consider four uh, the, the, the one that we get the most the one that we are known for are greens greens we have them in big numbers we are the the most important nesting area in the western hemisphere and in the world we are the second one but beside that we are the most important nesting beach for green turtles uh, the numbers fluctuate a lot because turtles don't come every year they come every two or three years but we have every year in between 40 40,000 nests to 150,000 nests in the whole beach we have a 29 kilometer beach so we have a lot of those then we have hawksbills and leatherbacks those ones we don't have that many leatherbacks every year we are having less and less we believe that that's um, maybe they don't like us that much anymore we are not nesting beach for leatherbacks so there are other areas that are important beaches for that so they are their numbers are consistent or improving so we hope that they just don't like us that much anymore mm -hmm. and then we have hawksbills hawksbills with those we are like every year we are also getting better numbers but compared with with greens that we have thousands of nests with hawksbills we only get around 70 nests every year and eventually very very eventually we get loggerheads so we still count them because they come from time to time and um, we're on the very edge of their nesting distribution that's why we don't have them so regularly uh, but for us it's like if someone of us gets to see a loggerhead on the beach it's like a big deal um, i got to see one in 2017 but i was not working in this part of the beach. and you still remember one. this event of course i do it was impressive like wait a minute that's the it looks oh my god it's a different species so yeah <laughs> it's a, so basically four we we consider four out of the seven that live in the world 
So to wrap it up, there was one guy who traveled in the Caribbean, uh, fell in love with how turtles behave, look, and you know they basically stole his heart. He wrote the book. Someone else believed in the idea and started the conservation facility. So that became the center, the magnet, the core attraction, the conservation of turtles that attracts now volunteers, tourists from around the world, including Europe. Yes, that's basically, to summarize, that's the story. That's crazy. Are there any requirements uh, for becoming a volunteer? Well, we have two types of volunteers. We have the long-term, that those are our research assistants. That's regularly people that are studying someone related with conservation and would like to pursue a, a career in conservation. Uh, you have to apply to become a research assistant. The applications are usually at the beginning of each year. You get to choose if you want to be here for leatherback season or for green season. You, for leatherback, you have to stay here for two months. For green, you have to stay here for three months. You just have to get here and we will provide you with food and accommodation and a two weeks training. I will be the one that it's training. And then we have the eco-volunteer program that that's only for one or two weeks. You have to pay for that. It includes the transportation from San Jose to Tortuguero. Um, you get food and accommodation from us, two days of training. You can get as much as you want to involve on the field work. And it also includes a canal tour in the canals inside the national park. The cost of that, it's also in the webpage. And if you would like to become a volunteer, you can check for all the information in the webpage because mainly that's not directly managed by us here in Costa Rica. It's managed by our central office. It's in Gainesville in Florida, in the United States. So they are the ones that solve those doubts and can arrange the, the dates if, if somebody would like to come here. You do the research one, so option one, you have to somehow prove that you're going for scientific purposes, for the research purposes. Yeah, yeah. For the first option, there is a selection process. Like we will see, you need to, to send a letter of motives. We need to know how involved you are, especially because living here, it's hard. It's hard because you live where you work and you work where you live. We, we need to be sure that you are going to be able to live with that. Also, it's a, an isolated place. To be here, you need to, to have some passion about it. Otherwise, your experience can be a very bad experience. Like we've had people that they were okay, but they are not going to do this anymore. But, and there's other people like myself that somehow we cannot stop doing this. That's um, an amazing way to test your, your wishes and desires versus reality. Maybe, and I know it's for a fact, students often romantize uh, their profession. They think they will be there in the jungle, enjoying fresh air. But in fact, the research work is mostly what? Excel? Yes. Well, in here, for example, it's not only going to the beach to look for the turtles. It's also you have to clean the equipment. You have to make sure that the equipment is ready. You have to, to learn very well how to take data because it, it's really sad if you are five hours on the beach um, looking for turtles and then you didn't take the right data and then it's like everything goes to the dumpster because you didn't take the, the data well. So that, that's why we need to be sure that for the selection process, that's why we need to be sure that we are choosing the right person. And also that's why we have such a, a very strong, how to say, long training process because we need to, to make sure that the people are going to take the data well. 
because you are contributing to a 60 year old database that has been working every year on constantly. So we need to make sure that the data is taken right to, to be able to trust in the data. Yeah, don't mess with the 60 year old um, archive <laughs> of data. Himan, here's the question. Do you think you would call this type of tourism generated out of a con conservation facility a conservation tourism? If it really has a separate name or is it just part of so-called sustainable tourism? So regularly people call it ecotourism. The, the thing is that it can be ecotourism if it's sustainable because it provides income and awareness to the people that participate in it. But for example, here in Tortuguero, we are having a problem that this ecotourism, it's getting um, on the way of become a mass tourism. So at the beginning, it can be nice, like if you have just small groups of people that go into nature, and it doesn't only apply for Tortuguero, it applies for a lot of other places where they do this ecotourism. If you regulate it enough and you like have rules to do it, you can obtain a lot of good consequences about it. You can make people aware and you can also get income to keep going with the conservation activities that can happen in an area. Regularly the problem is when it becomes a mass tourism because instead of just having three people walking in a path every day you have 200 people. 200 people really make an impact on the nature of the wildlife that it's around it. So here in Tortuguero I think we are passing that very thin line between tourism and ecotourism. The idea is that you come here two or three days, you see the turtle, you also see the national park, you learn something, but then there are people that they just want to come and see the turtles and then leave. It's not the full package. We would like them to have the, the full package. Especially we've been seeing that at the end of the nesting season, we are trying to work on some uh, more strict regulations about it because the beach closed only from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. during some part of the year um, up to October when the nesting season ends but then the nests take two months to hatch so November and December the beach is not closed but the babies are being born and people are super obsessed to having a picture a selfie with a baby hatchling so it's becoming a problem, a bigger and bigger problem every year because we're finding more and more disturbed nests that the problem is that people see that the nest is about to hatch. So they, they dig up, they take out the babies. And then uh, if you do that, you more likely are going to kill those babies because they're not going to have enough energy. They are not ready to get out. So with the disturbance, you force them to get out before they are ready. And then it's really sad that we are losing turtles because people want to take pictures with them. So we are working on, on having better regulations about that. It's a never-ending work because we are having more and more people. As the rest of the world, we are more and more. So we need to be more aware of the consequences. As you were saying, it's the same thing as the plastic, as the trying to teach people about the plastic. It's that we believe that, oh, if I take a seashell from the ocean, from the beach is like, oh, it's just one. It's like, yeah, but we are 8 billion people. Like if each one of us does the same, only one, then like our individual actions have a consequence. So. Right. 
to wrap this conservation conversation on conservation <laughs> up, would you mind suggesting a book for anyone interested in turtles in particular or in conservation? What do you think is worth reading? So I would highly recommend you to read this at uh, the Windward Road, the one that I was telling you about by Archie Carr. But also there are different books about turtles. There, are, Well, it depends on how much you would like to get involved in. Which one influenced like, you like, in particular? A book that it was really hard for me to read, but it took me several months to be able to read it, but it's quite shocking. And it's one of the things that kind of keeps me going on. It's A Silent Spring by Rachel Carson. That one, it's really hard. It's really raw. Uh, it was written in the 60s, but it was quite a shock for me and it's very inspiring. And also all the books from Stephen Jay Gould, those ones like the promise that I've read those in Spanish, so I don't know the names in English, but it's like the the panda's thumb and the greatness of life. He, he writes very well, so I would recommend like those books. They are really inspiring because they make you think in things about wildlife that you wouldn't regularly think, so. That's exactly what I'm looking would, for, yeah. a different angle on conservation, sustainability, because I am Sadly, or I don't know, luckily, I'm more in the corporate world in how corporations respond, how they act, you know, return on investment versus social return on investment, corporate social responsibility. So after our masters, I find myself very far away from nature, from conservation, from all this beautiful field work that we did on ecotoxicology, for example. So coming back slowly. Yeah, the thing is that it's really hard to find like good books about nature because regularly they are more involved like in the technicalities of it. They are really interesting about how turtles work, but they don't have the, like the narrative. Like what has um, impressed me more about to continue with this job is the things that I've lived in the field or stories that I've heard about people, but not, not in literature. Right. As with everything, a real life touch, basically. Yeah. Okay, it was very cool talking to you today. Thank you very much. I know you have to go and pick up your volunteer at the center very soon. Uh, maybe you want to give one last sentence, one piece of advice for the listeners of Sustainability Explored. One piece of advice. Um, I would say something that it took me very long to do it's try to find a passion and try to find something that you care about because once you find that thing that you care about and something that you really care about not something like oh i would like to have a lot of money or like something that you care about especially like look around nature like go back to nature find something that you care about you have kids or you have a husband like think about their well-being and then you will notice that we have to be better. Um, we have to be better for the planet and because we are going extinct if we don't do something better. But it's something that it also brings a lot of like joy to your life. If you do things for the sake 
of helping others or for the sake of a bigger purpose, you can find a sense of purpose in life, not just have this very square life where you go to work and then you just go to this supermarket on, on the weekends. And even if you have that job from nine to five and then like, try to find something that you really enjoy. Yeah, we need, we need a lot of people that care about the environment. We need more scientists, but we also need happy people because that's one of the previous problems that we also have. Like everybody's angry with everybody else and we are all like unhappy. So we need to be happier. And once we are happier, we can help each other better and we can do nicer things. Definitely. I totally share this view and very happy to hear that from you today. Thank you very much again. It's always nice to talk with you. Yeah. And with the people that listen to us, thank you very much. Bye. Thank you. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. We have three more episodes related to biomimicry, uh, conservation, islands and climate adaptation of islands uh, and the Amazon um, coming up in the next three weeks. So stick around, subscribe if you haven't done so yet. Uh, if you have any questions, do let me or Jimena know. Don't hesitate. Please reach out to either of us on LinkedIn. Uh, yeah, if you like the podcast, consider subscribing, not to miss uh, important or simply interesting updates. Uh, we are releasing new episodes every Thursday. Uh, share on your social media so that, you know, maybe some of your friends uh, or relatives would be interested in the topic. Leave a review um, on the platform you're listening on. I invite you all to check our Podchaser page and leave a review there. I take my time and reply each and everyone in person. The podcast is for its listeners and by taking your time to leave a review, you help more people to discover it. Last week, we received a nice review from Padimalo via Apple Podcasts. It said, wonderfully honest, gave us five stars and said congratulations keep up the good work thank you so much Padimalo I really really appreciate it I get a huge emotional boost when I get honest listener feedback in a review because it means that someone out there has been impacted by what I was saying or a guest was sharing and is engaged enough to say something back and when they share that review on social media They've introduced my show to their friends in a way I never could have. Thank you very, very much. I'd also like to invite you to check some other related to this one um, episodes out, uh, such as, for example, Sustainable Tourism with Jeff Smith from Six Senses Hotels, Resorts, Spas. My episode called Amazon uh, Rainforest Journey. That was my attempt to be a little bit like David Attenborough. Also, one of my beloved ones, where the challenge is, there is an opportunity. Interview with NASA's former climate science communicator, Laura Tannenbaum. Apart from that, of course, you're more than welcome to listen to every other episode that resonates with you. I'd be happy if you connect with me on LinkedIn, challenge me with questions, You can even suggest guests or become one yourself. Uh, You can also suggest topics you'd like me to cover in the future. 
Thank you so much again for listening, for being with us today. And until next time, next Thursday, the next episode will be on biomimicry. Meanwhile, take care, stay tuned, stay healthy and safe. Bye-bye. Thank you.